Oh. <laughs> I have often wondered just how sad this world would be without Santa's reindeer and some glowing pink Christmas trees. But when the nights get colder and autumn fades away, I know it won't be long until the happiest of days. It'll be Christmas before you know it. We'll all be together again. This time of year, it's good to be near my family and my friends. Christmas before you know it The sky's looking starry and bright Strolling along to a holiday song Caroling into the night Girls and boys wish for toys When they sit on Santa's knee If they're good and do what they should Tree. It'll be Christmas before you know it It's getting ready to snow We'll reminisce and steal a kiss Beneath the mistletoe Children dream of awakening And rushing down the stairs They stay up late Cause they can't wait Before you know it The holiday season is here We don't have to wait to celebrate Cause it'll be Christmas It will be Christmas It'll be Christmas Before you know it This It's here. Uh. Happy Sunday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? There's so much to celebrate when we take the time to do so. I am so excited about today's show because I get to uh, celebrate one of my favorite entertainers, artists, friends, and people. And that is the one and only Russ Lawrenson. Russ Lawrenson was such a Christmas staple uh, for years in San Francisco. Uh, and anytime he came to New York, if I could be there in the audience, I would be there. And guess what? Tomorrow night, he's going to be hitting the stages again here in New York at the Triad Theater on 72nd Street, and it's a benefit for ASA Cabaret Scenes, the American Songbook Association. But today we celebrate all things Russ Lawrenson. And Russ, it's so great to have you again in the States. 
Yes, yes, it's it's so it's it's a treat. This is our second time here this year, and it's uh, it's a little surreal because we haven't been here in a couple of years. So to be here twice in a month is uh, is a lot, and we're really enjoying it. Now you live in Spain. Now we're going to get to that, uh, but uh, how how many years have you been living in Spain? Uh, it's j coming up on four years. Oh uh, no, it was four years this summer, so uh, four and a half. Wow. And yeah. uh, as I said before, you, uh, for such a long, long time, and we're going to talk about all of the events that have been happening. And my God, there have been a lot of events in your life. <laughs> a few, yeah, over the last couple of years, for sure. Uh, but I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but the persona that you present to the world, God bless you and how you have dealt with all of this from our perspective. Oh, um, you know, I hope that behind closed doors, it's the same. I mean, um, I truly believe in gratitude and being grateful for what we have. And that gets you through the crap, right? Because you don't appreciate the good stuff if you don't, you know, unless you have the bad stuff. And so, you know, you can choose to be happy. You can choose to celebrate. You can choose to be grateful, just like you do. You're a very happy, celebratory guy. I mean, here's your show, right? Uh, or you can choose to be sad and bitchy and complain and not give anything back to the world. And I just think you get what you give. And so I, I really try to live that. Uh, I'm not a very religious person, but I am a karmic person. And I really believe the energy that goes out is the energy that comes back. God bless you for that. I, I mean, I am a very spiritual person. Um, and, you know, it's very interesting because and we can talk to, for those who don't know about what you have been going through. Uh, but I want to get to that uh, a little later. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to where it all began for you. Um, are you originally from San Francisco? No, I, I was born in Philly or just outside of Philly. Um, and then I moved to San Diego, uh, California when I was nine. And I spent most of my formative years there and went to college there. Uh, and then I moved to San Francisco in 1997. Um, and I lived there in the same house <laughs> for 22 years and then packed up and moved to Spain four and a half years ago. Wow. And I've stayed in that house. I yes, you have. You have. <laughs> many, many performers have stayed there. Some because they couldn't drive home. <laughs> but, uh, that wasn't my case. That wasn't your thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> they just had to land a plane for you. You're you're very special that way. Well, thank you. I, I landed a plane, and that's another story in another show. <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to ask you, when you were growing up, um, anyone else in your family have the artistic bent that you have? And if not, how do you think that that uh, slipped into every core of your being? Well, you know, it's funny, Richard. Um, uh, no. So growing up, the family that I grew up with uh, was not musically, theatrically, creatively talented at all. Nothing. I have recently found out, in addition, around the time I was suffering and getting through my cancer treatment, I found out some information thanks to uh, DNA, you know, our good friends at Ancestry and uh, 23andMe, that the man I thought was my father was not my father. Uh, I know, shocker, right? Stop, let's stop for a moment. Yeah. You found this out as a result of your cancer? No, 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 around the same time. Around the same time, so uh, I've I've been uh, I've been doing genealogy as a hobby for about thirty years, 
Uh, so I had traced what I thought was my family quite far back. Uh, but it turned out when I did the DNA uh, tests, the 23andMe and, and Ancestry, a lot of the things that I had found through my research based on what I had been told didn't add up, didn't match my DNA. And uh, I ended up, uh, I'll, I'll spare you all the gory details, but I ended up finding out that I had a, a different man was my father. He has, he has since passed as well. So all, all of my parental units have passed. But he, when I found this out, dug up my family. And in fact, I'm very excited here in New York because my, my sisters, who I didn't know I had more, uh, a little over a year ago, are coming to the show tomorrow. So you'll meet them tomorrow, two of my, two of my three sisters um, and their kids um, are here in New York and we're going to have dinner tonight um, and then they're going to be at the show tomorrow. But our father, the first picture I found of him was in a high school yearbook of his. And I kid you not, the picture is of him standing at a microphone and singing in front of a big band, just like you saw me at the beginning of this program. And the caption was George crooning in front of the, his classmates at school. And he was very, very talented. Um, he performed uh, musically. He was a gifted uh, uh, pianist. He could, uh, my sister say he could hear anything and two hours later play it perfectly. Um, he wrote plays. He directed kids. He was a, quite an amazing um, uh, educator and created a program. Uh, his, his doctoral thesis became the basis of an educational program for the state of Delaware. He ended up becoming a director of education for the state of Delaware um, that is still in use today. My, one of my sisters just retired from working in that program all these years later. Um, and it has been copied into other states. So very influential, very creative, very talented. And uh, I've now since found out, I, uh, my, I have a niece who is an amazing musician, way better than me. She writes and plays all the instruments and does all of her own recording. And she's got great stuff up on, up on Spotify. I, she's amazing. My other nephew graduated with a BFA from uh, University of Pittsburgh. Um, and he, uh, as a, a theater major, and he just moved here to New York um, as a writer playwright. So uh, not so much on the stage anymore, but he's got tons of stage experience, but he's decided that he wants to be more on the writing side. So I've, I've, I'm in the last year and a half been very excited to realize I come from, this is where it all was. When you ask, well, how did this get into my life? I remember my mother saying as a child, I don't know where you got all this musical talent from. Nobody in our family could sing, blah, blah, blah. Well, hello. Any clue as to why this information was not shared with you earlier? Um, my biological father was married at the time. Um, he was 10 years my mother's senior. My mom was single. Um, and turns out mom got around. She was dating a couple of guys, including my what I now call my adopted father. Um, but my, my biological father was married, uh, was 10 years her senior, already had one, my oldest sister, and my middle sister uh, was on the way uh, about a month before this whole thing happened. So, you know, scandal and all that stuff from 1961, 62. So, you know, that's why it never came out. And as far as we can tell, my sisters and I, my if if my mother knew who the father of this child was, and there, there's some speculation that she didn't, that it was a Mamma Mia kind of situation. Um, if she did know, she took it to her grave. Nobody else knew. 
Um, so it, it's an issue that's a mystery that we'll find out maybe someday if, if not. But they turned out, I found in continuing in my research, I'm quite the sleuth, he was a teacher, right? So I decided to start looking at the school yearbooks where he taught because if the faculty is in, I was looking for pictures of him. So I'm flipping through a yearbook and on page nine, there's my mother, a secretary in the office of this high school where he was the head of the social studies department. So now we know how they connected. So wow. I know, I know. So it's it's been, like I say, you know, I, and I debated for a long time about whether I was going to reach out to my sisters to, to the because I had discovered that I had them. And when I realized that both my father and his wife, their mother, were both gone, I decided I would reach out. I, you know, I don't want to be the turd in the punch bowl. Hi, I'm the brother you didn't know you had because your dad had an affair. Um, so I decided to reach out. And thank God, uh, my one sister, all she ever says is, it's a miracle, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. Because um, it was just the three girls. And so they always wanted a brother. Um, and I didn't have any, I, I didn't have any other brothers and sisters. So, you know, this was huge for me. I, I, I've not ever had people. I've not had family. You know, my family has always been family of choice. Um, not, you know, logical family, not biological family. And now I have biological and it's been the last year and a half has been spectacular. They're, they're, they're fierce women. I love them to death. Um, and I'm just so excited about it. And they are excited with me as well. So it's been a very happy, joyful, uh, you know, event in our lives to find each other. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, not knowing that aspect of your family and your life and everything, did you, grow up, wanted to know. <laughs> did you grow up in a household where music was the norm or the exception? You know, like most kids, you grow up thinking your parents have terrible taste in music, or at least I did, you know. Um, looking back, some of the most formative albums in my life, especially today when I realize what they are. I remember my father had bought the album, uh, Frank Sinatra's album, Old Blue Eyes is Back, when he made his return, which is a fantastic album. I know all the words to all the songs, right? And, and have known them since I was a child. Um, he, I remember he had, because I was just starting in the high school, he had Billy, uh, Billy Joel's uh, Piano Man album. Um, uh, Maria Moldauer. And like uh, really into uh, the Moody Blues, uh, which is a, a really great uh, rock band. But they did they did a lot of um, their Days of Future Past album to me is a tone poem, not not an album. I mean, it really if you listen to it from beginning to end, it's a gorgeous work of art with an orchestra and all that. Anyway, so, yes, there was music in the house. And it turns out that my adopted dad had amazing taste in music. Um, and then, and then funny enough, you know, to play to the gay gene, right? My, I remember when they divorced, my grandmother flew out from Florida to San Diego to, you know, spend time with my mother and comfort her through the divorce. And my grandmother bought Donna Summers, uh, or not, uh, not Donna Summers, uh, I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor. She, Gloria bought, Gaynor. she bought Gloria Gaynor's record and uh, this disco album and gave it to my mother. And my mother played it on endless loop. Um, and, um, and I also remember my mom, she had an eight track player in her car and, <laughs> and I used to go out there and listen. Uh, I'd sit in the garage and play because uh, it was the only, uh, you know, eight track we had. But my mom had these great eight tracks, uh, ABBA and um, 
uh, Eddie Rabbit and like all these great singers. And so, you know, I'm very attracted to singers and melody. I don't, I don't like noise uh, music. Well, did uh, you I mean, listen to these? Were you singing along? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I, I've told this story on stage because I've done, I've done the show, uh, mm. one of my last shows that I did. I wanted to be Barry Manilow growing up. It was me and a hairbrush and the stereo and i was like i knew every word i did all the song and i had this i had this very vivid picture in my head of what a concert would look like where i'd be singing and i'd have certain people in the audience including the guy who my stage name is taken from uh lauren salter sitting down in the front row and i will tell you there was nothing more surreal than doing when i did my barry Manilow show and having him sitting Right there. It was like all I needed was a hairbrush. I believe in manifestation. And oh, I believe, yeah. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. We believe that. Totally. Uh, so, when did you, you know, it's one thing to be singing with a hairbrush. I know many <laughs> people who have done that. Uh, but when did you realize, hey, I, I do have a voice? Huh. Um, I. I mean, I started performing when I was seven. I I I I, uh, I won one of the coveted elf roles in the Elves and the Shoemaker. You know, <laughs> we didn't we didn't quite make it to Broadway, but you know, we were we were big in our in our little town of Claymont, Delaware, and um, uh, so I enjoyed performing. I didn't think of myself as having talent and enjoying my voice until much, much later. I did a lot of musical theater. I, you know, I toured uh, with uh, Nuncrackers and with uh, Nonsense Jamboree. And so I did a lot of musical theater and I knew I was good enough to get, get hired. I was getting paid for it, right? But you know how we all are. We're all our own worst critic. And so I never, I, I wouldn't listen to myself and go, damn, you're good until recently. And I will tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be really egotistical here because I know how it sounds, but listening to this new album, which is of course, I have 15 years now in between when I did it and now. And I sit and I listen to it more so than my other three albums and go, God, that boy could sing. Like, I mean, there was, I was just in a good place in my voice at that time. And, you know, um, and so I'm very, very, very proud of it. And I actually, this is the only album of, eh, there's a couple of songs on one other, but this is the only one that I can sit down and put on from front to back and, and just enjoy it and listen to it and go, I like all the songs. I like how I sound. I'm, you know, I'm super tickled with it. So you I, do. but to answer your question, I never, I, I've never thought of myself that way. I just thought of myself as I want to do the work and hope that I can, you know, get paid for it. Well, when did other people start to take notice of this? Uh, and when did the shift happen for you? I mean, there has to be a moment where you go, um, whether you think you've got the talent or not, there, there comes a moment in every artist's life where you say, I'm going to pursue this. When, where, uh, and how did that happen for you? It was... Um... To be honest, it was the shift out of musical theater and doing theater and deciding to do cabaret or or really wanted, you know, I, I wanted to be a, a jazz singer, a big band singer, a, a crooner, standards. That was where I really wanted to be. Um, and I was doing a lot of musical theater and, you know, musical, it's, it's a collaborative thing, right? You're part of a cast and so you don't really control what you're doing and i wanted to, i wanted to do a little more to control my art and so i was doing um i was doing a, a a show in san francisco 
uh, with Clea Blackhurst. Wow. And uh, Clea and I, uh, when we were both drinking, spent a lot of time, you know, in, uh, in, in some clubs talking about what is cabaret and what is good cabaret and what is bad cabaret and 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 what are the pitfalls like if i was going to do this uh because that seemed to be at the time my easiest entree into doing what i wanted to do i didn't really want to do cabaret as it's known really in new york i wanted and to by do this female. time in your life you were living in san francisco am i correct i was yeah this is around the time that you and i met 2006 probably 2005 um and uh and so i got a lot of i got a lot of coaching from clea not in performance but in the business and what it was about and what i was about to embark upon and she gave me some really great you know, uh, clea already hit her stride oh, at that yeah. point yeah, okay. she she had been touring her her Merman show for a long time. At that point, she already had the Merman album out. She came out during that period with her amazing Vernon Duke album, which I wow, I, I great, wish, great album. Isn't that a great album? God, I wish that would had gotten bigger play because I think it's fantastic. Um, so Clea was really influential uh, with me. Um, she got me introduced to Donald Smith. Um, and Jeff Harner and some other people uh, when I first started out. Um, and along that same time, I met Kelly Park, who is my longtime, he says long suffering, musical director. Um, uh, he had a club in, just outside of San Francisco in a town called Alameda, called Kelly's of Alameda. And it was a jazz club. And I had decided, I had seen him play uh for a couple of people in san francisco not uh, uh not uh, what's the word uh, also sean ryan like that not not inconsequentially i saw him play for he was sean ryan's musical director as well um and i remember saying to my husband at the time we sat we went to the plush room and we saw uh kelly play for sean and i turned to my husband and i said if i could get a musical director like that i could do this that's what I need. And so I, one night, drove out to Alameda, sat in the club like a little mouse, and he was there running the club, as he does, and I pulled him aside and said, hey, I, I'd i like to rent you by the hour. Because <laughs> <laughs> at the time, I wanted to just, I, I thought if I got to rehearse with him a little bit and get some feedback, and he said, oh, uh, sure, okay, whatever. Um, and I, we arranged a time. I went back to the club one afternoon, and I came in with a with a show. I had my traveling show. Here's all the songs. I was ready to go. I had store. I knew what I wanted to do. I had built the show in my head. I just needed someone to help me, sort of put it together. So we went through. He played through a few things. He was very impressed with what he heard, and he's like, "Okay, well, if you have a show, you have the song. We're like, what do you need me for?" And I said, "Well." I need a musical director. I need somebody to do this. And I was hoping maybe you could recommend someone. He says, I'll do it. I love it. This is great. And that's how it started. And within an hour, he told me, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the show together. We're going to do this. You're going to play it here at my club first. And then by the end of the year, we're going to have you at the plush room. And then of course you'll have, we'll have to have an album done. And so you have something to sell at the plush room. Like this went from Hey, would you would you rehearse with me too? You're gonna have an album and a show, and you're gonna play New York and all of that. So, put him putting that belief in my head that we could do this is, and that's exactly what we did. 
you know, we put the first album out and we literally the day the first album, the traveling album came out, we went into the studio and recorded the first Christmas album. And so in 2006, we had two albums within six months of each other. Um, and those are the two, two and they, and it's still there, there's a radio station in San Francisco that's been playing Christmas in San Francisco. Um, uh, it's the biggest adult contemporary station, uh, and they go to an all Christmas format, uh, November, December, and they play, they've been playing Christmas in San Francisco. Now it's 18 years. It's, it's the number one song uh, of mine on Spotify. So it's something like 190,000. I mean, it's amazing. It's crazy that this song has lasted this long. Well, you know, first of all, the plush room, uh, one of my favorite places to play anywhere. Me too. And I'm so sorry it's no longer around. But when you first got out, it's, you started out at Kelly's and he yep. brings you into San Francisco proper and you were performing at the plush room. Um, how did your how did you find your first audience or how did they find you? Um you know, you know how it is when you start. It's it, your first audiences are friends and family and people yes. you talk. And and you're a novelty. You know, I I had been working um, for a long time, which was the basis of the traveling show. I've been working in Silicon Valley. That's what I did, um, running contact centers, call customer care centers for tech companies. And so I traveled the world because everything was outsourced or out on offshore and all of that stuff. So a, a lot of the basis of the show was stories about my travels around the world and the general theme of travel. And so I had a lot of friends from that world who, you know, I was like some exotic animal in a zoo, like you're going to do a cabaret show. Like nobody knew this about me. No one, you know, um, that I worked with, I kept that world very separate. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a big audience. And then people who, I knew from musical theater, right? I had, I had, you know, been doing, uh, you know, musicals all over the country for a long time. And so that those sort of audiences came together. So the first, you know, year, every time I did something, people were like all over it, you know, then the work starts when you have to expand that audience beyond your, your family and friends. And that, you know, that's where the challenge comes. That's the business of show. Um, yeah, for anyone listening out there, this is called building your foundation. You already had that foundation in place before you started. But when you started, uh, was there a moment for you when you realized uh, this is where I belong? Yeah, I I did a show. I hadn't yet done. Um, well, I went, I, I said, you know, Linda Cossett and Lua Hadar. Oh, yeah, of course. And, so for the audience who doesn't know, they are, I call them my cabaret angels. They yeah. are cabaret performers in their own right, but also uh, taught cabaret in San Francisco. And they would have like a regular, like monthly open mic. And then they would take who they thought had promise and put them to an, uh, you could sign up and do like an all day workshop with them. Uh, and that night put on a show, you would bring one or two songs. I can't remember. I think it was just one. Um, and they got the venue. They had the uh, accompanist. Barry Lloyd was our accompanist. Um, My um, San Francisco guy. That's yeah. It. So, um, and uh, they put this thing together. And I went out and I did this show. A bunch of friends came. It was a really fun night. And I just did one song. And I was like, oh, now I want to do more, you know? Um, and because of that, Lua was helping to produce 
a Lua and Barry were uh, working to produce a concert version of the musical Follies uh, as a fundraiser for the uh, High School of Performing Arts in San Francisco. And the idea was the orchestra were, were the students uh, of the school. So we had a full orchestra, I, like, I don't know, 40 pieces or something. It was wow. huge. And in, well, as we did Follies, our younger selves were students in the school. So we were singing with these high schoolers who were playing young Sally and young Buddy and, and those people. So um, I was Buddy. My, my, my Sally, uh, my adult Sally was Carly Ozard. Ah, right. Uh, well, I think uh, it's going to be in town. For she will be at the show tomorrow night, and then she's performing. Uh, Susie Mosher has something going on Tuesday. The I can't go. Yeah, the, the lineup. So she, Carly, will be there as well. Uh, but I remember the first time I met Carly. I was in the. I, I walked into the house of a theater, Forty uh, Second Street Moon Theater in San Francisco, and as I walked in the house, this woman comes bounding up to me, as only Carly can do, and said, "Hi, I'm your wife." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, sorry. I'm yeah, whoa. Um, and so she, you know, she said, I'm gonna I'm gonna be your wife. We're in I'm gonna be Sally. But it was uh Lua and uh was in this show. Barry Lloyd was in it. Barry and I, there's a great video somewhere of Barry and I doing uh, a duet from that show. Um uh, uh Carly was in it. Uh, oh my god, like the cream of San Francisco cabaret, and that night. Richard, I came home. My my former husband was out of town, so he couldn't come to the performance. But I remember coming home in my tuxedo after the night, and this is the God's honest truth. I walked into my bathroom and looked in the mirror, and I said, "Your life just changed." Wow! Like, I, and I said it out loud. Take this in. Remember this. Your life just changed, and it did. Because at that moment, like the worlds collided. Here's my theater world. We're doing a concert version of, of a show. It's the cream of cabaret of San Francisco. Like it was, it was a very surreal moment for me. And I and I and I made sure that I marked it. Um, and that's when I knew that I was going to do something. And then from there, two months, three months later, the first album comes out. Uh, we did the album release at the plush room, then the Christmas, and then it just sort of took off. And, um, and then probably, uh, sorry, I'm making this a very long story, but the other no, time no, that great. I, that I really felt that I, that I had made it, that I had done something really meaty and special, um, uh, Stuart Moulton, I don't know if you know him. He, uh, he runs Austin Cabaret Theater. Theater. I love yes. him. So. Uh, I was friends with a board member from Austin Cabaret Theater who was a giant fan of, of uh, Clea, who went to everything uh, that, that Clea did. And so she flew from Texas to California to see Clea in this show that I was in with Clea. And I got to know her a little bit. And she said, you, uh, you should do a duet with Clea on your first album, which we did. And we should get you into Austin Cabaret Theater. And so she went back and talked to Stuart. And Stuart, you know, I'm, I'm nobody. I've, I've never performed on the national stage really in this environment. So, you know, God bless him. He was like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. And I convinced him they were going to do their annual gala that year. And the star of the gala was Eartha Kitt. And I called him up and I said, look, Stuart, I will come down. I will fly my band and come down. I'll pay my travel expenses, all the hotel. You don't have to do anything. 
if you let me open for Eartha Kitt. And he thought about it and said, really? I don't have to do anything. I said, you don't have to do a thing. I will. I'll, I'll pay it off. And I just want to come down. I said, but my here's my here's my rule. I have to be on the same stage uh, as her in the same room. I'm not going to be audible wallpaper playing out in the lobby to, you know, like for a cocktail hour. I want to be the opening act. I said other. And, and if you guarantee me that we'll be there. And he did. And we went down and we opened and I did 30 minutes. It was still in workshop. We hadn't finished the whole show, but we did 30 minutes of my Tony Bennett show, which, you know, I toured for 10 years. You yes. know, but the first time we put it in front of an audience, uh, we did 30 minutes of it there at Eartha's show uh, at Austin Cabaret Theater. The people went nuts for it. And two years later, he had me back as the headliner to do the full to do the full show, um, which was which was really awesome. And where I got to meet that, where did that chutzpah come from that you were willing to put everything on the line at your own expense to come in and open for a major name like Eartha Kitt? Um, God, I wish I knew because I'm not really like that. I am really not. I, I don't have that kind of gumption. You know, I'm very. I think polite you are more than you think you are. I, I think I can. I think I can be, um, but I, I don't normally. I'm very like, okay, if you want me, great. Okay, whatever. Blah blah blah. But sometimes you just go no. Like it was all like all the stars lined up, and I went, if I can do this. And you know, as talk about building your foundation, if you can, and I've been able to for years, truthfully say, I opened for Eartha Kitt, mm -hmm. which opens doors for you. People at least then will pay attention. They might look at your press kit or they might listen to something. And that, that, and that was back in 2005, 2000, no, 2006. So from that, I knew the value of having that calling heart. That's really what I, what it was about. I mean, God knows I, I loved meeting Eartha Kitt. She, and poor thing, she had she was not public about it at the time, but she was going through chemotherapy. She was very, mm. very ill. And so um, I had sent flowers to her room before the show. Um, and I did my thing. Her musical director was very, you know, very, uh, you know, very uh, nice to me uh, and complimentary about the show. And then Eartha gets out and she's like, you know, backstage and she's very, Ooh, kind of very weak and tottering. And then they called her name. The light went on and she was bam, hi. And she sang, did her show for 90 minutes. And then they had a meet and greet afterward. And Eartha, the way this room was, I was at one end, far end of the room and Eartha was at the other, um, you know, where people would come up and talk to you and that kind of thing. And um, as she was on her way out, she stopped me and thanked me for the flowers. She was very cute. She goes, you know, I can't take those home with me. I said, I know they were just for your room. Um, and she was very complimentary. Um, and that's, you know, the only time I met her or talked to her, but she was just, couldn't have been more lovely. Um, and then, you know, she died just a few years after that. Uh, wow. I saw know. one of her final performances, uh, Danny and I, Danny, uh, for those who don't know my husband, we went to see her at the Carlisle mm -hmm. and she, stepped off the stage, went right to Danny, put a big kiss on his lips, <laughs> oh. moved on. So, but that was the only time I saw her live. Um, yeah. I got to see her one more time uh, after that. And, uh, and then, cause she, you know, once she finished her treatment, as we all do, when we finish our your cancer treatment, you, you, you're, you know, once you come out of it, all right, now you're back. And so she had another few years and then, uh, and then, you know, 
died. Uh, ironically, on Christmas Eve, I think, is the day she yeah, died. Yeah, that's right. Um, I want to make sure that I get all the information in before sure. we run out of time. But, uh, you know, I first of all, I want to talk about this event that you're doing. Yeah. And this is for the American Songbook Association. Um, tell us, give everyone a little history of this CD. And when you say that this was 15 years ago, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, no, we, um, so the history of the CD, I had been doing a number of shows. I did a traveling show. I did a Tony Bennett show. I did a Bobby Aaron show. I was doing all these theme shows, right? And I was really, as I mentioned earlier, trying to move away from my theater voice and theater persona on stage to being more of a, of a jazz crooner musician. That's really where my heart is and where I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to make that transition. And I... Someone mentioned to me when I said that I wanted to do that, um, that why would you want to do that? The Great American Songbook is dead. Like nobody sings that stuff anymore. And this is before Buble, right? Before he was really big. Um, Harry Connick had done the When Harry Met Sally album, but that was about it at the time. And all the rest were, you know, Jack Jones on his, you know, uh, singing The Love Boat and other things that he did. And uh, some of the other performers were on their, on sort of in the waning years of their career. And that pissed me off. Sorry if that's not allowed on your show, but no, that that's not um, because I, I honestly, God did not believe that the Great American Songbook stopped being written in 1959. Like that's, that's BS. It's still being written even today. And so I set out to do a show with new songs, things that have been written, say, in the last 20 years by contemporary songwriters in a in a standard E style. Um, uh, where, that had nice melodies, thoughtful lyrics that you could understand, that had emotion in them, um, that were something that could have been sung 40 years ago if, in that same vein. And God knows, it took a long time to edit out because there's so many songs like that. And um, so some of the songwriters you know, Bob Levy, who will be at the show tomorrow night, who was at the original show, um, was one. Their songs by Harry Connick, their songs by Peter Sincati, um, their uh, Lionel Richie, uh, Andrew Lippa, uh, Maury Yeston. There's a bunch of people, uh, great, great composers in this. So I, I put this sh show together. I came up with a list. I contacted a bunch of the composers um, uh, uh, to to get their feedback and, you know, in some cases, permission. I, I got because I got contacted by one of the. He shall remain nameless. But one of one of the composer's lawyers contacted me, saying get, trying to give me a cease and desist, and I'm like, what? Didn't matter. Anyway, so we we put this show together, uh, and I toured it. Uh, that was my that was my show for that year in uh, in 2007 and 2008. And the final two shows of the of uh, of the tour, we were going to do at the Metropolitan Room nightclub in New York, and. I decided to ask uh, to see if we could arrange to have it recorded with the idea that we would be putting out a live CD concert recording the following year. I figured that was like an easy way to get an album on the shelf, right? And turn so J.P. Perot, who you know very well, um, that uh, who was the tech director at uh, at the Metropolitan Room at the time, who by the way is tech directing the show tomorrow night, which so we're come full circle. It's really exciting. Um, recorded it for us. Um, we also had it videotaped, um, which I'm by Ken Cliver, which I was really, really happy I did. Um, anyway, did the show, 
many of the composers came. Tony Desaire came to the show. Uh, Ray Jessel, we have two of his songs, oh, came awesome. to the show. Um, uh, Bob Levy was there. Ronnie White, a uh, bunch of people came to the show. Julie Wilson came just because she's Julie Wilson and fabulous. And anyway, so we did the show. We recorded it. And then 2008 is the recession. I lose my job. You know, it's uh, all of a sudden, all the theater contracts, the performing arts centers, all those contracts dried up. So I wasn't performing as much. I'm trying to save my pennies, find a job. I was out of work for almost a year. So there's no way I could put out an album. Like it was too expensive. So the, the original recordings went in a box and that's where they have sat for 15 years. And this year, once I, uh, uh, so let me just say that. Went through my cancer treatment. We, I know we don't going to have. So, a whole I want to back up for just a moment, Russ. Yeah. Forgive me. Uh, when you put these in that box, yeah, it was always with the intention that you I'll get to it. That you were going to get around. No, but you were going to get around to doing your performing again. Well, yeah. Well, yes. And I was performing. You know, I I went on and w continued to perform. But now I I was on to a new show. Right. You know, you've got to have the material fresh. So they went in a box. And putting, you know, producing a CD, they they average, you know, it was like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars, and I just didn't have that money laying around, so they just sat in the box. I went on and kept performing for many years. Finally, put out another CD. I put out a holiday CD in twenty fifteen with a big band, but this other project just got set aside. And frankly, I had never seen any of the video. I had never heard any of the recording. I didn't know what we had, and so I sort of just went, eh, okay, well, it was a nice idea. Anyway, kept performing. Uh, we, uh, I went through my cancer. Uh, I had tonsil cancer a, a couple of years ago, which the radiation destroyed my singing voice. So I can't actually sing. <clears throat> you might even hear my voice starting to get raspy now just from talking. Um, so I can't sing anymore. And um, earlier uh, this year, I found myself in between jobs once again. And I thought, I've got some months off. I'm not doing anything. Let me go dig those recordings out and see if there's anything there. I've, you know, I have, I have this to-do list of things uh, all the time. And I've had this on my to-do list for 15 years. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to get to it. I worked with a brilliant producer um, over in Europe um, uh, who he's, he founded the great American songbook radio station mm -hmm. uh, is a fantastic station. Um, and sent them to him. He said, you know, send them over. I'll see if there's anything on it. and send them to him. I, cause I was asking, do you know any engineers I could work with and stupid me didn't realize that was his entire career. He's in his seventies. Now he goes, I've been a music producer and studio engineer for years. Send them to me. I'll see what you got. He fell in love with the raw recordings and, and said, we're going to make an album out of this and I'm not charging you. I just want to do this as a labor of love. And so we worked for months. We would meet every week and go through. We had two nights worth of music. So we would listen to one night and then the next night, same song, pick the right version, what we liked. Um, and eventually, uh, and then I went back to LML Music, Lee Lessick, where my other three albums are. I asked Lee if he'd be interested in it. He said yes. And so we sent it to him. And so we have an album. The show, now when you produce an album, you normally have, when it's released, you want to do release an, party. Album, an album release party. And at an album release party, usually the singer sings <laughs> the stuff that's on the album, but I can't sing. So what to do? And what we decided to do was we were still going to celebrate the album, but to prove the point that these are great songs, we're having some amazing guest artists come in and cover the songs. 
showing that it doesn't matter who's singing. Everybody can put their own stamp on good songs. That's the gist of the American songbook, right? Like lots of people want to sing it. Lots of people want to record it. And over time, it becomes a classic. And so we have these amazing guest artists and we decided to do it as a fundraiser to raise money for the American Songbook Association, whose mission is to protect and promote the great American songbook, modern and classic. Well, uh, tell me how you came uh, to choose these particular singers. Um, uh, the, I'll go with the one in the middle there on, this, on the card, Jennifer Roberts. Jennifer um, and I both have been voiceover announcers on the Great American Songbook radio station. Jennifer is like the full-time voice of the station now. And so there was an obvious connection there um, to her. And to be honest, the way that we I got over the, am I going to invite her or not, was a call that you and I had a few months ago where you said, you realize that Jennifer sings a lot of Bob Levy music. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that. And we were obviously, we have Bob's songs on the album. So I'm like, well, who, who better? So I want Jennifer. So I asked Jennifer. She was the first one I asked. And she signed up and said, absolutely. And so she'll be singing. Um, we well, Only one of the two songs we recorded made it onto the album because the other one, I, I just wasn't good enough in concert. So uh, Russ, when, you've never met Jennifer before? Uh, not in person, no. We've we've Zoomed and that sort of, ah! ah! <laughs> <laughs> we Zoomed, we haven't met in person. I mean, we haven't met. Hello. Hello. But uh, she's always telling me, you know, what time it is and I should donate to the station and all kinds of things. <laughs> Hey, I picked your new CD though. I love. I know, I know. I heard that. I heard that. Uh, Renee shared it with me. Um, so hi. I'm, uh, I'm actually gonna. I'll, I'll be seeing her at rehearsal very shortly. I'll be there yeah. as well because I'm rehearsing in the next room. Oh my god! How fun! <laughs> How fun! Well, yes. Yeah, so Jennifer was the first one I asked, and the first one to graciously say she would do it. Um, and uh, I'm so excited that she's going to be there. And the other folks, you know, what I was trying to do was appeal to a wide variety of people to show that the songs uh, can, you know, touch different audiences. So Jennifer is sort of representing the theater community. That's where her her history is from. Mm -hmm. um, I fell in love with uh, this great song she has on one of her albums um, uh, about her travel song, because I did a traveling show. And and the first time I heard it, I didn't know who she was. It, it was on the radio station and it came on. I'm like, well, that's a cute song. And then I hear Sidney Meyer on the, in the song talking, uh, which just killed me. Um, and then, uh, so Lenny uh, Watts is doing it, who is sort of representing the cabaret community. Um, I, I asked um, Spencer Day and Mary Foster Conklin to represent the, the jazz community. Um, and who am I forgetting? And Billy Stritch, who just represents every community. Everybody. Uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, I think it's a really, really great cast. I'm super excited about it. Um, and I'm just going to be the MC. I don't, <laughs> I don't have to and, say. Uh, I, you, let's talk a, a little bit about the American Songbook Association. And you, I mean, this is your baby. You could have chosen any organization in the world yeah. uh, to do, the, uh, to benefit. Why the ASA? Because of their mission, um, frankly, the, the, their mission is to preserve and promote the Great American Songbook, which I am passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so not only they believe and have as their organizational mission um, that the songbook isn't dead. 
that it's still alive. It's still, and, and so to put their money where their mouth is, they're out in the, uh, in the schools here in New York, in the L5 boroughs, bringing this music to kids and trying to keep them interested, keep it alive, keep a new generation interested in what's going on, which is so, so important. Um, and they are also take uh, as a as a beautiful benefit. They're also in the senior community to remind people of what the, their music is, what they grew up with, and trying to keep that in front of them. Because you know, someone you can't just flip on the radio now. Well, except for the one station that uh, that uh, Jennifer and I are part of. But you can't just flip on the radio and listen to Sinatra and Bobby Darin and Tony Bennett and Dean Martin and Ella Fitzgerald. They're just not. It's not there. So they're hitting both the young and the old with this. And I thought, what a better match to what I was trying to do at the time that we did the show and what I'm trying to get across with this album, that these songs are timeless and will will go on uh, long after we're gone. And I want to say one thing because I know we're really close on time. So on top of the ASA, the, the, the album is dedicated to our dear friend, Ray Jessel. Ray Jessel, who we loved. He was a loved. Uh-huh. Love, love, love. Um, and at the time I was doing the show, I'm not going to go into the details because I'll start, I'm already misting up every time I talk about Ray. Ray was particularly kind and generous with me at the time I was doing the show. At the time I was doing it, I was going through a divorce. Um, I was questioning whether I wanted to keep going in this business because you know how hard it is to sell tickets and all of that stuff. And Ray was extraordinarily kind and supportive of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I, and, and, and came to both of the shows. So when we did the two shows in New York, there were a couple of people who came both nights, which is, which is incredible. And Ray came both nights. Bob Levy came both nights. Bob Levy and his husband drove in two and a half hours. Yeah. Into yeah. I can't wait to see. Uh, yeah. So, um, but Ray was extraordinarily in my personal life, very, very supportive and when so when I listened back to these recordings and watched the video, and there was a great video clip that I'll show tomorrow night at, at the show where Ray was in the audience and I was having this interaction with Ray um, and a, a fun anecdote between the two of us. And I did two Ray Jessel songs in the show and we recorded both of them. They're both on the album. And it just struck me that I wanted to say thank you to him because I think it's it's I don't I don't like to bring up bad news, but the that appearance that he made with America's Got Talent first catapulted him into national prominence. Like everybody, oh, finally everybody sees what a what a great performer he is. And then immediately he got canceled and put aside because it was deemed that what he did was you know insensitive. So. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's very interesting. There are two things that I want to share very uh, share very quickly about Ray. Um, and I've shared these with you before. Number one, Ray had reached out to me. God bless Ray. I mean, he performed uh, in uh, no, no tales out of school, but those of us in this business, and I'm maybe you have, maybe you haven't, uh, but there have been moments where you're lucky if you've got five people in the audience. Oh. He, he would go on um, with three people in the audience, and sometimes yep. two of them were Danny and me. Yep. And uh, but he became a, a dear friend. And when that happened, um, when he was on Amer- uh, America's Got Talent, um, all of a sudden uh, there's this huge buzz about him. Right. And he reached out to me and said, now's the time we're going to hit. And I was going to work with him. And then 
the rug was pulled out from underneath them. Yeah. But one story I want to tell very quickly is that we were having dinner with Ray one night at Joe Allen's, and this is a testament to Ray Jessel. And who walks in but Joan Rivers? And he said, oh, my God, we used to live in the same building. And I said, you should go over and say hello to her. And he said, oh, she's not going to remember me at this point. This is Joan Rivers now. And she, huge uh, at that time. And she was sitting at the back table and she screamed out loud, oh, my God, it's Ray Jessel. And she came running over to our table and she was hugging him and tears were in her eyes. And she said, we lost track with each other. And I think that one moment to get the recognition, because I mean, Broadway composer, he wrote yeah. many, uh, the, my, you know, everyone knows the Love Boat Follies with yep. Carol Channing and Della Reese and Ann Miller. That was written by Ray Jessel. Right. And, right. you know, what an amazing talent. He, I mean, um, his career is incredible. Like, you know, he started as a classical composer. That's what he was starting out to do. Ends up writing comedy in sitcoms in Hollywood. Like, I mean, just what a very, and then didn't actually start performing until he was 70 years old. And God bless him. God bless him. I miss well, him so much. We are going to run out of time. I want to okay. remind everyone tomorrow night, uh, two things I want to remind everyone of. First of all, there are still tickets available uh, if you can get them, uh, yes. 212-362-2590, or go online and triadnyc.com. Uh, if you can't remember, call me. I'll get it. And also, this is the CD, Standard Time, live in New York. And I'm so glad that you will be here again. Um, I'm going to give my final word of the day, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. And you've got the final word. It could be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with. And when you say goodbye, uh, we're going to end with the real deal, you performing live at the Metropolitan Room. Awesome. Uh, so I want to thank everyone for being here today. Um, I know I can speak for Russ when I say this. We don't take it lightly when you show up. So for all of you who showed up today, thank you. I hope that you'll show up tomorrow night. I would love to see you as well uh, at the triad tomorrow night, seven o'clock. It's gonna be a lot of fun. And I also end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go online and buy two copies of Standard Time. Keep one for yourself and then send one to let's say the eighth name that pops up on Facebook, reach out with a phone call to that person and let them know the impact that they've made on your life. Not an, uh, an instant message, not a private inbox message, uh, but a phone call and let them know uh, because, you know, names that we've mentioned in the show, Julie Wilson, Ray Jessel, uh, many other people, Joan Rivers, they're not physically here with us anymore. Yeah. So it's important that we celebrate our friends and our family in this community uh, when we have the opportunity to do so. I have a dear friend, Sean Moniger, and he says we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on as long as you have a skipper by your side. Russ, I'll see you in a couple of hours. Yes, yeah, for sure. Turn this over to you right now. It's all oh. yours. 
things. Great. You know, to follow up, Richard, on what you just said, um, yes, people are gone. But I also want to point out that you, you as a person, all of us as people, never, never know what impact we have on other people, what our actions have on them, what small act of kindness changes someone's life. Ray Jessel was that for me uh, in this particular instance. He probably had no idea the impact that he had on me and certainly didn't do it so that he would have an album dedicated to him 15 years ago. So think about that when you're out in the world, hold a door open for someone, help someone if they're heavy groceries or just be kind to other people. Because as I said earlier, the energy that goes out is the energy that comes back. Thank you all for being here. I hope to get to see you at the Triad. Um, every ticket includes a copy of the album. So if you buy two tickets, you get two albums and there you go. You got one for Christmas. All right. Thank you all. Love to everybody. Goodbye. So I wrote a lyric for this, uh, gave it to Kelly. He worked on, uh, on, a, on a melody for us. We wrote a bridge together and uh, let's see what you think of it. It's raining memories, memories of you and me from long ago, long ago. It's raining memories, don't need no weatherman to tell me so. It's raining memories, no one's ever seen such rain before, such a downpour. It's raining memories, and the forecast calls for Shared a crosstown cab. It rained the night you left me, taking all the love I had. I'm freezing in the storm without your love to keep me warm. I'm
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.